Hello and welcome to Philosophy Gets School. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording this episode in November 2022. This episode is introducing you to epistemology, which is about how we know about the world. So we'll be thinking about different theories of knowledge, including the famous tripartite definition, how we might object to and alter that definition, and consider various commentators on it such as Linda Zagzebski and Edmund Gettier. We'll also see what else we get on to, as always. Joining me in this episode, we have Paul Moore-Bridger from King Edward's School in Birmingham. Hi, Paul. Hi, Simon. Uh, very pleased to be here. And we've got Sally Latham, who's philosophy teacher at Birmingham Metropolitan College. Hi, Sally. Hi, Simon. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, great to have both of you with us. Okay, so we're going to talk about epistemology and the theory of knowledge in this episode. This topic appears in the AQA specification for philosophy uh, and in the IB, but isn't in OCR or Edexcel uh, religious studies uh, specifications or Scottish hires. However, it's well worth listening to, even if it isn't in your classroom-based discussions. Awareness of this issue and the debates will be really helpful, whether you're thinking about knowledge of God and the arguments for his existence or thinking about Descartes and Hume and other people. Okay, so let's start with something basic and fundamental. I've just said epistemology is about uh, how we know about stuff and how we know about the world. Should we just have a conversation about just exploring that then, about what epistemology is? Who wants to kick things off? Well, I, I don't mind sort of jumping in um, and saying a few words about that. Just, I'd like to sort of just draw attention quickly to the fact that everybody who's listening to this is probably a, a student or a, a teacher uh, or maybe a, working in a university. And of course, what we're all doing there is we're you know, producing or passing on or disseminating knowledge. And it's just quite interesting to think about what it is that we might be doing when we do that. What is this uh, knowledge stuff that we are either producing or passing on? And that's where kind of epistemology gets really, really interesting, I think. And in fact, I, I happen to teach the IB uh, specifications, and that includes an entire course called Theory of Knowledge, which is dedicated to just trying to work out uh, how it is that we know things in different subjects. So it, maybe it's, it's slightly more sociology of knowledge than philosophy of knowledge, but it does try and get to the point that it really matters that we know stuff and how we know stuff. And so when we think about epistemology, it's this kind of systematic attempt to study what the nature of knowledge is, you know, what it is we're actually talking about when we refer to, to that stuff, knowledge. Uh, and then also, to what extent? You know, what is the extent of our knowledge? How much of it do we have? Do we even have any at all? Of course, if we want to go back to uh, trying to say uh, a little bit about its, its origins, maybe it's always quite fun to look at the epistemology of it, sorry, the, the etymology of epistemology. That's not easy to say. Uh, of course, it comes from uh, the Greek as ever, uh, first coined as a term together by a Scottish philosopher called James Ferrier, who is otherwise obscure to me, I must admit, uh, in 1856. But it comes from the Greek uh, episteme, which is knowledge, and of course, logoi, which is to try and give a, a rational account or a study uh, of something. So that's what it is. And I remember, actually, there was a brief time, when, um, I don't know how old everybody is, is listening to this, but there was a time when epistemology was very briefly incredibly sexy in terms of you know, the whole sort of news media was consumed with discussions of, of epistemology. And that was in 2002. 
where the former uh, US Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld gave a very famous speech, uh, which probably everyone perhaps is, is familiar with. But I'd just like to quote briefly from it, just to kind of uh, get a sense of that we've got something to disentangle and think about here. Uh, and he's, he's talking about um, weapons of mass destruction here. And he goes, reports that say that something hasn't happened are always interesting to me. Because as we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know that there are unknown unknowns. Sorry, there are known unknowns. That is to say that we know that there are things that we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. And if one looks throughout the history of our country and other free countries, it's the latter category that tends to be the difficult ones. At which point everyone kind of laughed at him and said, what on earth was that? But I think there's a germ of something interesting in there. And it just goes to show that we do need to investigate what this thing called knowledge is uh, and how we might have it if we have it at all. So that's my little opening gambit. That's great. Thanks, Paul. Sally, any comments about that? And um, Yeah, I think with, with any type of philosophy, we have a duty to define our terms and be clear about the words we're using. And I think no and knowledge, well, no, perhaps more than the word knowledge, is something we throw around an awful lot. <laughs> now, I know my parents love me. I know you're wrong. I know today is, is Wednesday. I know that the sun is shining. And I think, you know, actually defining what that means and whether there's any criteria that we ought to be ticking off to make those claims is, is very, very important. So I teach the A-level spec. And for the epistemology, you know, if, if you're doing it in its entirety, probably take, you know, it's a good term's worth of work. And it falls into the first section, which is, what is knowledge and how do we define it? Secondly, how, if at all, can we get knowledge from the senses? Thirdly, how, if at all, can we get knowledge without the senses and through pure reason? And then fourthly, well, how far can we take our knowledge and are there any limits and boundaries to it? So what we're going to be looking at today is very much that first section. What do you mean when you say you know? <laughs> and I think it's just back to basics. And this is why it's an absolutely fundamental and foundational part of any type of philosophy. Because what I found is epistemology then pops up everywhere. So when I'm talking about arguments for God, well, you need epistemology to understand what the argument is and what knowledge is being claimed and whether you're claiming certainty or a high probability. And I think without doing epistemology, it's pretty difficult to do anything else, I think, in philosophy. Great. Thanks, both. That's really helpful. So then perhaps uh, just a few comments from me. Yeah, I really like that Donald Rumsfeld uh, quotation, Paul. Thanks for introducing it. And in fact, I think people did say it was a bit silly, but actually philosophers kind of got really excited because there was lots of stuff going in there to, to pull out. And so knowing that you know is, is something very interesting. Perhaps we'll come back to that uh, right at the end. And it's got interesting issues for justification, which I think is going to loom large later on as well. Um, so yeah, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that and and students just to underline some things that Sally was saying. So if if you're familiar with the specification, particularly for A level for AQA, then you'll know there are different sorts of knowledge which the specification breaks down. Which all being well, your teachers have, have broken down for you in the in the classroom. So there's knowledge by the senses, as Sally was saying, um, or, or or by acquaintance. There might also be testimonial knowledge. So me learning stuff from teachers or from switching on the news, or from finding things out from Paul and Sally, right? And so testimonial knowledge is really interesting, that transfer of, of ideas and claims. So someone knows something, there's a big debate about whether then I know it if they've transferred it to me. 
uh, and then what we're going to be thinking about today is is very much just the basics, as as Sally and and Paul were just emphasising. And we're thinking about, I suppose, the basics of propositional knowledge. So Sally mentioned uh, God there. So obviously, if you're doing AQA philosophy, if you're doing IB, if you're doing anything in OCR and Excel, all the others, you're going to be thinking about arguments for the existence of God, whether a claim such as God is omniscient, God is omnipotent, God is benevolent. Well, these are claims and these are often referred to as propositions. So propositional can seem a scary term. All it means is there's a proposition, an idea, a claim that's being made. And we're thinking about, you know, you're having a, you're making a claim or you're having a belief, be it a hype-fluting belief that God exists or a matter-of-fact belief such as a table exists. And then we're thinking about whether this is true and justified and whether it can be seen as an item of knowledge. Okay. Sally, Paul, anything else you want to add to that? Um, Just from some of the examples that you were both putting forward there of different types of knowledge, it is just worth flagging up that the English language isn't particularly helpful here to pick out those differences because we've just got that one verb, you know, to know, whereas uh, the Germans and uh, the French have got things maybe slightly more uh, organized uh, so in german there's a, a verb a separate verb for sort of knowing by acquaintance or being familiar with somebody so i know my my form very well because i see them every day and they use kennen for that one there's to know a fact or the pr- propositional knowledge which we're going to spend quite a lot of time on which is they use the the verb wissen for uh, and then there's another one for ability knowledge like being able to ride a bike i know how to ride a bike that's kennen which um, all of those sorts of the fact that the language itself, the English language doesn't pick out those differences is a sort of potential source of confusion and ambiguity. So it's just worth being on our guard. And that's why we have to do this extra definitional work. So if we're having philosophy get schooled um, in German, we might have a, we could maybe have cut this section out. I don't know. <laughs> that's really helpful, actually, Paul. I wasn't aware of that uh, with the German language. And so, yeah, students, so if you ever study uh, epistemology certainly at university level and perhaps your teachers might introduce it in the a levels a bit of a stretch or challenge exercise there's lots of debates about the differences or the potential differences differences between propositional knowledge so knowledge about beliefs and claims and things like that factual knowledge and then know how um, so riding a bike knowing how to drive a car knowing how to make pancakes whatever it is and that's a different form of knowledge but as Paul said we're going to focus very much on propositional knowledge uh, today okay so we've we've talked about that we're going to arrow in on propositional knowledge so as I said it could be highfalutin beliefs that you have or claims that you're making such as God exists um, or that the mind is separate from the brain or it might be quite matter of fact everyday beliefs such as the table exists or it is Wednesday, or I love pancakes, or something else. And then this gets us into a very important definition of knowledge, which is called the tripartite definition. So does someone want to explain that for us? Uh, Sure, I'll I'll explain that. Um, So the tripartite theory of knowledge was proposed by Plato, and the tripart is is three parts. So for Plato, there's three parts to knowledge, and that is uh, justification, truth, and belief. So if you were presenting this kind of formally for an exam question, for S to know P, S must believe P, P must be true, and S must have some kind of justification for believing P. And Plato 
explains that that justification is important. So we could ask, well, what does it matter if you believe it and it's true? Surely that's enough. Well, I understand this in quite quite a, a strange way, but I always imagine, imagine you've got an X on the ground that marks the spot and you've got a balloon floating around above it. Well, sometimes it's going to hit the spot. Sometimes it's going to be directly above where it needs to be. But unless you've got something tethering it, then it's all a matter of chance and luck. So I can believe something really, really strongly. I can be so convinced I'm going to win the lottery and I can you know, get up and quit my job and put that deposit down on the car. And, you know, and I do win the lottery. Well, I've got I've got the truth and I've got the belief. But arguably, you'd argue that I didn't have knowledge because there was no justification for it. So this idea of justification is something anchoring the belief to the truth. And obviously what that anchor will be is a, is a whole kind of worse, but you know, the, the idea that there's got to be some reason that your, your belief is, is connected to the truth. So you have that justification, truth and belief. And Plato argued that all three are necessary conditions. They're individually necessary. So without, you have to have all three. If one is missing, no knowledge. And they're also jointly sufficient. So if you have all of them, all three, that's enough. You don't need anything else. Now, if you can tick all three off, you, you have the right to claim knowledge. And the tripartite theory can be attacked on both of those accounts, actually, whether the conditions are necessary and whether they're sufficient, which I believe is what we're going to concentrate on a bit more today. Yeah, that's great. Really helpful, Sally. Paul, do you want to say anything in addition? No, no that was a very uh, clear summary of, of the position. I think what was what I find interesting in the Plato, and I just, just go back to it, is that the idea of justification in Plato is the ability to give a kind of a rational account and whether or not that's exactly the same as what modern epistemologists are talking about is is, a, is open to debate. But there is, I think, uh, and Sally brought this out really well, I think there's quite a lot of intuitive plausibility to what he's saying. This sort of sounds like the tripartite definition, I think, sort of as that the example of the floating balloon above the X and then also the, the, um, the lottery win sort of picks out. There is that thing where I think once you reflect on this, if you were to chat to uh, the person in the street, I think they would probably be initially quite persuaded by by Plato. It does seem to, the tripartite definition does seem to pick out what most of us think are the necessary conditions and perhaps indeed you know, the jointly sufficient conditions to describe something as knowledge. So as an analysis of knowledge goes, I think it's got a lot of initial plausibility. And I think it does sort of survive for a couple of thousand years, pretty much intact, doesn't it? Um until until <laughs> there's a cliffhanger for us anyway but yeah th- I think um, not much more to add than that great thanks Paul yeah j- and just some comments from me I suppose nothing to add but just to echo and, and underline for, for those for the students to make sure we've got it everything nailed down so I think Sally gives us a really good example of that balloon over the x and the lottery so we're imagining just the numbers popping into your head and you just you know plug them in into the machine and you've got a belief, I suppose we'd call it a belief, that the numbers are going to be these numbers. It turns out it's true. But anyone would say probably, yeah, you didn't know that that was going to win the lottery, did you? You didn't know it. Um, and that's, I suppose, what we're trying to get at. So there's kind of got to be some sort of intuitive plausibility or categorization of cases which we think, yeah, there's someone who knows something. and there's someone who didn't know something, perhaps in this case, they just got lucky. They had a belief, they had an idea in their head. It turned out to be true, but there was no connection. They didn't have reason for their belief being true. And that's the kind of 
interesting thing around which a lot of the debate revolves. Um, but but it has some initial plausibility. The tripartite say, well, you've got a reason for believing something's true. Uh, but as Paul said, there's a bit of a cliffhanger there because there are some problems with it. Exactly how justification of truth, in particular, relate. Um, before we get on to the to um, resolving this cliffhanger and telling the story uh, uh, or continuing the story anyway, should we just have a think about the nature of definition? Just say a few words about that because that's part of the certainly the AQA specification. It's probably worth us reflecting on that because philosophers are kind of used to defining stuff all the time, um, and often they do it in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions. But sometimes philosophers are a bit dubious about whether things can be defined. So shall we say a bit more, a bit more about that, Sally? Sure. So um, on the AQA A level specification, they mention um, Linda Zagzagsby, and she brings up this this point about there may be certain things that we can give proper definitions to, and certain things we can't. So if we can give some very defining characteristics then we can, get, we can say that we've given something a, a proper definition. So if you take, for example, um, gold. Now, gold is defined as a particular, a particular element, and you bring something to me, you bring me a piece of jewellery. Um, we can say definitively whether that is gold or whether it's not, we can, it's because gold has a, a proper definition. There are other things which we can't do that for. So, for example, if um, you take the example of a dessert or you know, a pudding. Now, what constitutes a, a pudding? I don't think a bag of crisps after a meal constitutes a pudding. I don't think, you know, my, my kids might disagree, but we, there is no proper definition of that. Um, same as a weed. You know, what's one person's weed? It's an unwanted um, plant. But on the other hand, you, you, can't, you can't bring me a plant and tell me definitively if it's a weed. You know, same as, you know, for example, vermin. Yeah, I think squirrels are gorgeous. Foxes, I'm so excited if I see a fox. Other people would completely disagree. So Linda Zagzagsby says, well, what, what about knowledge? Which camp does that fall into? Can we give a proper definition of propositional knowledge? Or is it more like a pudding where we're not really ever going to get anywhere? And she says, well, look, we've got to try. You know, we have to try. And if we fail, we fail. But we at least need to embark on trying to give, give a, a proper definition of knowledge, which is exactly what Plato did for us. Great, thank you. And just to add a couple more examples in, or at least one, one new example, then your reflection on one of yours. So uh, a very famous uh, example given by Wittgenstein, I'm mentioning Wittgenstein because I know you like, you like Wittgenstein, Sally. Um, so in his later philosophy and philosophy, philosophical investigations, he uses uh, the example of game, which he thinks can't be defined in the way we've just been talking about we can pick out loads of examples which are games pick out loads of examples that aren't games but actually saying what are the exact specific conditions that something needs to satisfy in order to be a game we just can't can't do it um just then just a, a little reflection on the idea of weed which is uh, the example you gave Sally. So I've got a good friend who I did my PhD in philosophy with. And it was only when he was doing his PhD that he actually realised that weed wasn't a kind of proper definition that couldn't be given necessary and sufficient conditions. He thought there was a category of plants that were weeds and then a category of plants that were not weeds. And I had to explain to him that weed just meant an unwanted plant, right? It was a plant that you didn't want in a particular place in the garden or wherever. And he was kind of bowled over by this. Um, Paul, did you want to say something as well? 
Well, I can say something about weeds, actually, which uh, the and they're changing um, status because um, well, this is an entirely silly point, but <laughs> weeds have tra- so in lawns, weeds used to, things like dandelions and daisies used to be seen as definitely weeds and dreadful things and to be to be dug up. But now, of course, they're part of a, a wider thing called a wildflower meadow, and very much to the um, to be welcomed and and, and celebrated. Uh, so, <laughs> just to go to show that. Yeah, even the particular instances of you know, dandelions in a different context and the changing nature of uh, horticultural fashion, I guess. Um, that doesn't really add much. Um, just a couple of little comments about Zagzebski, because she, once she gets on to saying, well, let's give it a go, um, she does give a couple of sort of characteristics of what we might hope for in a definition of knowledge. I think quite importantly, um, she wants it to be more, to be illuminating, for it to be kind of less obscure, certainly than the thing that it's trying to define. So that's something to be alert to as we go on to adding various conditions to our justified true belief uh, analysis, which does itself have the, have the benefit of being sort of clear. So I think it makes things clearer to me as to what we might be talking about when we're trying to lay out the, the various conditions of what knowledge might be. And also that we should try and uh, do so in a positive any definition ought to be positive rather than negative uh rather than just sort of trying to define what knowledge isn't you know, just define what knowledge is by saying what it isn't isn't necessarily going to be as welcome as the possibility of saying what this thing is and again the tripartite definition does very well say what this thing is um what what it is that we're trying to discuss and describe so she's got, she does not, not only just she sort of say, well, let's actually give it a go. She does give us some guidance as to what we might hope for in a decent definition if we can get one. Great. Okay. Thanks, both. That was all really helpful. Um, let's leave things there, having introduced epistemology and the tripartite definition of knowledge. And we'll see you in the next part where we try and make trouble for that definition. And welcome back. Before we move into this segment, this is just to remind you to check out my website, uh, Simon Kirchin, K-I-R-C-H-I-N. If you search that, you'll find it. On uh, the website, I've got a few tabs at the top. One of them says Pod Schools. If you click on that, you'll have a list of topics and when we're recording them, and it'll take you to links so you can listen to all of the Philosophy Get Schooled episodes. Please feel free to contact me um, over email. If you've got any comments and questions about the episodes, either ones coming up, because we'd love to include your questions in the episode. Uh, And even if you've got questions about things you've heard, then I hope at some point I'll have a few Q&A sessions with some teachers so we can fire questions at Sally and Paul about the tripartite definition and everything else. Also, just another quick advert, I run two podcasts. The other one is called Philosophy Takes on the News, where I chat most weeks about significant events with other philosophers, getting at some of the big ideas behind the headlines. So if you like this episode, check out that one as well. Okay, so as I said, we've introduced epistemology and the tripartite, tripartite definitely better get that right for this, um, for this segment. Um, now we need to start making some trouble for it. And there were some historical precedents. So Bertrand Russell uh, did some things like this in Problems of Philosophy. But everyone associates the tripartite definition with a man called Edmund Gettier, uh, who was American 20th century philosopher, who didn't publish very much in his life, but did publish a kind of very short paper 
that got more citations than any other paper in the history of philosophy. And he was known as the king of the counterexample. Um, and we're about to find out why. So in this classic paper about the tripartite definition, uh, he gives us two examples. And then lots of other examples come along as well. So Sally, do you want to introduce the first example? For Absolutely. Um, yeah, the image that just came into my head then, I don't know if you know from, um, from Batman when Heath Ledger plays the Joker and there's that yeah. famous scene where he's walking away from the burning hospital and just leaving all this chaos behind him. That's just what, this is what Getty, Edmund Gettier did. He's just like, right, here you go. And then we've just been trying to sort out this mess ever since. Um, but there's lots of Gettier-style examples out there, but um, especially for AQA, you do need to know the original examples. So Gettier was trying to show that three conditions of justification, truth, and belief were not sufficient for knowledge. They're not enough. So again, I'm going to possibly paraphrase slightly in this, but hopefully we've got the key <laughs> key points in there because you wouldn't be expected to recite it word for word in any kind of exam situation. So imagine that Smith and Jones, two, two men, are going for the same job. Now, when they're in the, the, the waiting room waiting to be interviewed, this the CEO of the company comes over and is talking to Jones and there's every indication. He's pretty much telling Jones he's going to get the job. So Smith forms the belief Jones will get the job. And that's a justified belief. It's justified by the testimony of the of the CEO of the company. Then while they're waiting, he sees Jones count the coins in his pocket and he has 10 coins. So he forms a second belief that Jones has 10 coins in his pocket. And that's justified by observation. He's watched him. He's watched him do it. So you now have two justified beliefs that Jones will get the job and that Jones has 10 coins in his pocket. So quite logically, he puts those together and forms the belief, the man who gets the job has 10 coins in his pocket. Now, that is a justified belief because it's inferred from two other justified beliefs. Now, by some strange turn of events, it's Smith who gets the job. The CEO clearly had it wrong. And Smith, you know, whatever he does later, he pops down for celebratory pints, counts out his the coins in his pocket, and he has 10. So that belief, that justified belief that the man who gets the job has 10 coins in his pocket becomes a justified true belief. So what we've done there is, is we've ticked off every criteria in the tripartite theory of knowledge. We have a justified true belief. And yet, intu intuitively, we would not want to say that Smith had knowledge. If there's some kind of coincidence here. It's some kind of lucky guess. It's You've got the justified true belief, but it's just not knowledge. And therefore, he's shown, Gettier has shown that justified true belief is not sufficient. Great. Thanks, Sally. And let's do the other example then, Paul. OK, now this one's, um, I think, pretty slightly less easy to get hold of uh, um, for students, perhaps, because it involves the way a little bit kind of logic -y stuff um, called a disjunction. Um, and the thing you need to know about disjunction is when you get a couple of propositions joined together by the word or. And I'll say a little bit more about uh, that as I kind of go through this. But just if you find yourself being a bit, thinking this is a bit random and a bit confusing, just kind of keep thinking about this idea of a disjunction. And a, a disjunctive proposition puts two propositions together. And if one of them is true, one element of that is, is true, then the whole thing, the actual unit that you're thinking about is the whole proposition. So that will make more sense as I now go through the story, again, uh, Gettier, not that original with his names. We've got 
Smith, we've got Jones, and also they're joined by Brown this time. So we'll see what these these chaps, there are, and they are all chaps, uh, get up to. So Smith this time has got some strong evidence for Jones owning a Ford. Perhaps, I don't know, uh, Jones has always owned Fords. He's got you know, lots of Ford merchandise. He always wears you know, a cap with Ford on it. He's perhaps president of the Ford Owners Club. We, we, he definitely has, there's good evidence uh, behind Smith's belief that Jones owns a Ford. Now, from that, Smith creates, and you might wonder about his motivations for doing so, but he does. He creates a what we can call a disjunctive proposition, well, actually three disjunctive propositions that uh, follow on from this. So the propositions are either Jones owns a Ford or Brown is in Boston. Uh, then he thinks to himself, or either Jones owns a Ford or Brown is in um, Barcelona. And then finally, uh, he thinks to himself, either Jones owns a Ford or Brown is in Brest-Litovsk. Now, <laughs> just remember that if either part of that, that's, this, that's a whole sort of unit of, of meaning there, the, the proposition is the whole thing. If either bit of it's correct, then the whole thing's correct. Worth just saying that those, other than starting with the letter B, those uh, places are completely random and Smith has got no good reasons uh, for believing that he knows where Brown is. There's been no postcards exchange or anything like this. Now, there's a, a shocking twist to this story because it turns out, okay, that Jones does not own a Ford. Uh, perhaps he's just uh, lost all his money and the Fords he may have had in the past have all been repossessed or something, I don't know. Um, but for, for whatever reason, that belief is, is now false. Jones does not own a Ford. If that wasn't shocking enough, it now turns out that just by pure fluke, Brown is in Barcelona. So the second of those disjunctive propositions, either Jones owns a Ford or Brown is in Barcelona, turns out to be true. Now, that disjunction had been formed from a belief for which Jones had got, uh, sorry, Smith had got excellent evidence. So what we've got here, again, seemingly, is a case where we've got a justified, true belief which we'd feel very, very hesitant at calling knowledge, perhaps because it's, you know, arrived at through sheer luck. And also, well, we might get on to a little bit more about why we might be hesitant to call it knowledge. But that's the basic um, outline of it all. And it does sound a little bit strange, but just try and keep reflecting on the idea of what a disjunctive proposition is and how they kind of work in in logic. That's great. Thanks, both of you. Then just some commentary from me and, and you're right Paul that that second example is a little bit more complicated it might be that students uh, just need to reflect on it just a little bit to understand it with the disjunctions but the first example that, that Sally went through is a little bit easier to understand even if it seems like a bit a bit weird and a bit strange about uh, Smith forming particular beliefs about people having 10 coins in their pocket I mean, the, the reflection is basically this. We've got justified true belief that, that we thought was nice and solid, this tripartite definition. And, you, I mean, philosophers have kind of pulled apart every, every condition. We're not going to do that uh, quite on this podcast. We're going to assume that belief's fine. 
that in order to have knowledge, you have to have a belief. So we're just going to leave that one that one aside. It's the relationship uh, between truth and justification, or the reasons you have for believing something that's true, that really uh, Getier is getting at, uh, and that most of the discussion and the examples subsequent to Getier are getting at as well. So in a way, they've got it. Smith, you know, both of these cases, and then in lots of other cases, that the Smith type figure, maybe us, um, has, you know, has a belief. The belief turns out to be true. And there are reasons for them to believe the thing they're believing as true. But somehow those reasons aren't connected to the truth sufficiently or indeed in the right sort of way. So sometimes people are just getting lucky. Because they've seen something happen, they've got a reason for believing that a thing has happened. Perhaps the thing has happened, so it's true, but it turns out that the reason they thought was a reason isn't a good reason, but something else has happened, which if they knew about that would be a good reason and would, of course, justify their belief as true. And so because of that kind of lack of sufficient or good or appropriate connection between justification and truth, we're kind of coming up against a, a, a thought that well, we've got justified true belief, but that isn't knowledge, right? That's just some kind of weird kind of claim. I mean, it, it, luckily for you, it was true, but it isn't knowledge, mate. Um, and that's really what's going on with so many of the examples here, that relationship between justification and, uh, and truth. Any, any other thoughts from, from either of you before we start thinking about some responses to, to, to this? Do you want a few more of the other cases, the, the other sort of Gettier-type ones? There's a few fun ones out there, aren't there? There's one from, from Chisholm about the uh, sheep in the field, which I quite like. So you, one can imagine that you, in this case, you're the, the Smith-type figure, and you, you go out and you have a, a look out of your window up towards the top field. Perhaps let's imagine we're a tenant farmer or something, um, and we see what we think is a sheep in the field. So we form the belief that there is a sheep in the field and we've got very good justification because we can see one. Uh, it's a bit of a distance, but you know, normally speaking, perceptual uh, verification of the whereabouts of sheep is pretty, pretty decent. You see a white fluffy thing in a field and you think to yourself, it is a sheep. Now the twist in this one, uh, this particular case, is that there is a sheep in the field However, the sheep in the field is maybe just hidden over the brow of a hill. It's actually out of your line of vision, or perhaps it's behind a tree or something. And what you thought was a sheep was, in fact, uh, a sheepdog on some sort of uh, I don't know, spy raid or something, because it's disguised very convincingly as a sheep. Perhaps they're fans of Sean the Sheep, perhaps there might be younger um, audience members, but could perhaps imagine this quite, quite vividly and easily. Uh, but again, what we've got there is a true belief which seems to have some justification to it, but yet we would hesitate to call um, seeing a disguised dog good warrant for believing that there is a sheep uh, in the field. But it, again, fulfills exactly the same pattern as, as the Getier case. There's more good ones that perhaps um, Sally's got some yeah. favourites. Probably should mention yeah. Barnes at some point. Uh, fake Barnes probably come in later, I guess. Yeah, um, I quite. if you want like a nice, short, kind of sharp one, I always like the one about looking at the clock. So you look at a clock and the clock reads three o'clock and it is three o'clock. So, you know, there you have just I think clocks are reasonable <laughs> justification for knowing the time. And, you know, you, it's, it's true and you believe it. And yet the clock stopped two days ago at three o'clock. 
it just it just happens to be that you look at it at three o'clock. So although you've got a, a justified true belief, you haven't got knowledge. I mean, the clock's going to be right twice a day. And again, there's this, this idea of the the lack of connection between the the truth and the belief. I think, and I think as well, you know, you use the term Paul. You know, these are quite random, confusing examples, and they they are contrived. They're very contrived, and I think this brings in something a little bit deeper in philosophy when you've got these strange contrived examples as, as counterexamples and um, we've had to work quite hard here to disprove the tripartite and perhaps the question is well should we be working that hard <laughs> um, but I think that's philosophy this is this is the case he's done it Gettier has done it and now we have to deal with it however however contrived it was you know and that's perhaps a lot of philosophy is like that it might be a very bizarre example to make a, a very important point yeah. Although I have to say, so you're right, though, some of these examples are very contrived. I mean, the, the original Gettier ones are very contrived. I think the clock one's mm. uh, kind of a good one because that has happened to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> to me today, actually. Oh, okay. Like, so not contrived at all. <laughs> and certainly with the clocks going back at the weekend, mm. which, which happened just before we were recording this, then you can imagine that that happening. And indeed, even in the, the sheep in the field case, Paul, that happened to my wife once. We were walking along on a country walk and she said look at the look at the the sheep in that field then we got closer and she realized it was a dog but there was in fact a sheep in the field just over the just you know by by a head um and I thought oh Roderick Chisholm there we are um (laughs) did you explain that at the time I didn't I didn't uh, (laughs) no she doesn't like that sort of thing right so um we've kind of set up the problem then I hope students you can manage to to latch on to it and it might be that you're using this podcast as revision so i hope um you had some good classroom discussions uh with teachers and classmates about it so i hope this is kind of refreshing your memory about these sorts of cases but interestingly on the aqa spec and this is important for for other learning as well in if you're learning in in different ways uh, away from aqa then there are some classic responses um, to Gettier. So then we're going to go through some of them. Um, shall we start with infallibilism? Is that okay? Anyone want to introduce that? So uh, just, just to kind of emphasise again, um, like the sort of common features of, of the Gettier type cases, um, there's that business of luck. Uh, and then there's also, we might worry about some of the methods that are used to try and um, arrive at the justification. And we might think that some of those methods uh, might be fallible, might be open to, you know, not the most kind of absolutely certain. So just kind of, I know, watching uh, somebody count the coins and putting them into their pocket might not be the best justification for thinking about who's going to get jobs and all the rest of it. So we might sort of think to ourselves that one of the issues with Gettier case or Gettier type cases might just be that we need to get rid of the possibility of being wrong. So um, we could say to ourselves, well, let's just say that if we want to say that you know something, we're going to have to say that in order to know that that P, then you're going to have to say that you couldn't possibly be mistaken that P, whatever it happens to be, that it's three o'clock or um, that there's a sheep in the field or or whatever. Because as we've already said, when we're looking at sheep in fields there is always that possibility i'm sure that when your wife simon uh was able to sort of when she realized the truth of what had happened i bet she didn't sort of say to herself do you know what i just can't believe it 
that's impossible. I cannot believe that my perceptual apparatus has led me into such a, a cruel deception. So it's thinking about that, we then say to ourselves, well, perhaps if we want to give an analysis of knowledge, gives the uh, criteria for it, we're going to have to say, let's remove the possibility of error. Let's say to ourselves that actually I'm only going to claim that I, I know something if it's as certain as, say, immediate perception, something like, it seems to me that there is a computer screen uh, in front of my face right now. And it doesn't seem to me that that's, uh, that's got a possibility of being uh, falsified or being wrong. So that belief that I've formed and the justification for it seems to have been formed in such a way that it couldn't be wrong. And of course, most the most famous example of this, which many of you uh, might have studied as well, is com- comes from uh, Rene Descartes, who tries to, uh, using his evil demon example, tries to come up with a belief that just could not be wrong. And he famously argued that even if he was being deceived, he couldn't be deceived uh, into thinking that he was thinking. And therefore, because he was thinking, as thinking was a kind of deception, he, mu- he was thinking, therefore, he must exist. So it's kind of saying, well, actually, look, the issue we've got with these Gettier cases is that we're just using fallible methods. And if we just get rid of the fallible methods, then we're going to be fine and we can rescue our justified true belief definition. We're, we can we can respond to to Gettier-type cases, because as everyone sort of sensed, there was that kind of luck and there was that sort of, yeah, these kind of strange intuitions that you might have been having or just guesses or looking at stuff from a distance or whatever it happens to be, using faulty clocks. That's obviously happened to me. The batteries in clocks sometimes goes. You can't be entirely reliant upon them. Let's just say that's not knowledge. So there we go. That's the infallibilist... um, approach there are of course some problems with it which we might want to pick out i don't know i'll, I'll stop talking for a sec give someone else a chance perhaps to have attack attack at the infallibilist view i mean what infallibilism does is it sets the bar ridiculously high for knowledge and you know what is actually going to meet that so it really then does divide philosophers again as to what the job of a philosophy is because is it our job to be completely thorough and to not accept any belief that we could possibly question. Um, and knowledge has to be only that which cannot possibly be doubted. Descartes thought yes. You know, he thought that that's what we should be doing. That, that, that's, that's, you know, that's proper, thorough philosophy. On the other hand, what does it leave? I mean, Descartes thought he, he met that challenge. He thought with the Kigito, and I haven't got time to go into that today, but certainly Descartes believed the Kigito was infallible. Others have disagreed. So what, there's a potential that we could be left with rather empty, trivial truths. So, okay, well, I can be absolutely sure that a triangle has three sides. Okay, but who cares? <laughs> um, you know, I can a- absolutely sure that two plus two equals four. Well, what does that tell me about the world? And it's certainly not an intuitive way to use the word knowledge. Again, you know, if I, 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 know, I, I know that there's, you know, that today is, is, is Wednesday. Yeah, my memory has deceived me on that before. (laughs) So it doesn't leave us with very much. So I think you've got to question, do you want a definition of knowledge that is functional? (laughs) Or do you want a definition of knowledge that satisfies Descartes? (laughs) I think that's what it boils down to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. So in fact, the the phrase or the word going through my head was risk-free when it comes to infallibilism. Um, I think you put it very well. Um, yeah, I'm just not attracted to infallibilism at all. 
Um, Paul, do you want to come back and, and say there are any, any other problems for Infinity? Well, no, it's just, I was, for me, I mean, you've, you've really summed it up, but I, um, I admit to being a fallible human being and we're all fallible human beings. And I think it's probably useful to have a definition of knowledge that in some way captures what, what it is that we get up to rather than setting the bar to such a, a high level that we could never um, meet it. And I think, as you've talked about the risk-free thing, I think there's a kind of paranoia about thinking that we can, uh, that we have to exclude from claiming to know things, anything that could possibly be wrong. And as you say, we'll, we'll end up with not much at all that we could claim to know. And that would seem to be, well, fairly pointless um, as a as a place to end up. If we're going to try and define knowledge, we might as well define knowledge in such a way that human beings might be capable of having it. Yeah, in fact, and, and actually, if you look at the history of the human race, it's been pretty clear that we have known things and we've advanced and made progress in all sorts of fields. Uh, so it's it's pretty obvious that human, humans have been able to make progress because they've known things and they've known that they've known or been very confident that they've known things. And so the infallibilism um, position just doesn't seem to capture that at all. It's not workable for us, but also not as a good reflection on, in fact, what human beings have known, discovered, advanced through through history. Um, great. So let's leave things there. So having we've we've gone through Gettier, explained the examples, we've thought about one response uh, to Gettier style examples in fallibilism, but there are some other responses as well, and we'll come on to those in the next segment. And welcome back. So we've started by uh, talking about epistemology generally. We've introduced the tripartite definition for a theory of knowledge. We've introduced and thought about Gettier-like counterexamples. And we've considered one response, infallibilism. But there are some other responses as well, uh, at least mentioned on the AQA specification. But these are kind of classic kind of style responses. So uh, we're going to think about three in this segment. And the first one we're going to think about is no false lemmas. So Sally, do you want to start us off with this? Sure. So if you think about what we're trying to do at the moment, we've got this um, idea that knowledge is justified true belief. And we know we've got to do something with that. Getty has shown us that. So infallibilism that we, we've just discussed actually left knowledge as a justified true belief. You've just got to beef up that justification <laughs> to the point of that which cannot be doubted. No false lemmas is an addition. So we know that the conditions aren't sufficient, so we're adding something to it. So a false lemma is a false step in a chain of reasoning. It's a false belief from which we have inferred other beliefs. So in under no false lemmas, knowledge is a justified true belief that has not been inferred from any false belief, which is designed to eliminate these coincidences. So you can't have any incorrect steps in your in your inferences. So if we backtrack to um, to Smith and Jones and the the job interview example, the belief that the man who ha- who gets the job has ten coins in his pocket was a justified true belief, but it was inferred from two other beliefs: one that Jones had ten coins in his pocket, fine. The other was that Jones would get the job. And that was false. 
Justified, yes, but it wasn't true. So because the final belief that the man who gets the job has 10 coins in his pocket was inferred from a false lemma, it therefore doesn't qualify as knowledge. And that fits with our intuition that it wasn't knowledge. So we've added this extra clause to the to the tripartite theory. We, we realise it wasn't sufficient and we add that you can't have a justified true belief inferred from any false belief or any false lemma in the process. Great. Uh, thanks. Uh, Paul, anything to add to that or any thoughts about this position? Yeah, I, I'm not keen on it as, as it happens. Um, I think it's, it's got some some problems. So uh, I worry a bit like we had with the infallibilism one, actually, that this kind of uh, demand that we sort of eliminate the possibility of, of false inferring anything from a false belief uh, seems to mean that I'm actually going to be restricted in actually inferring kind of anything or coming to any knowledge at all if there has to be this, this condition that none of it is inferred from a potentially false belief. So I wonder about how we go, you know, are we, are we sort of boxing ourselves into another corner here where as kind of human beings, we're not going to have that much that we're definitely always going to be inferring in, the, uh, in a way that removes the kind of possibility of, of uh, any error. Also, you can, um, with the Smith uh, and Jones uh, example, you can sort of modify the original Gettier case, and you could say, well, actually, let's change um, Smith's belief to um, he re- he believes that Smith will get the job on the gr- sorry that Jones will get the job because the company president told me that Jones would get the job, not just Jones will get the job. And if you make that change in kind of the original uh, proposition, then you've still got kind of a a justified true belief with no false evidence um, that leaves you with the man who will get the job has 10 coins in his pocket. And of course we were, so we've sort of, we can sort of remodel the Gettier case, the original Gettier case. And then that seems to uh, still be a Gettier case without any false lemmas in it. So there's no false lemma there uh, from which Smith then infers any belief. So we kind of end up back with the original Gettier problem. Would it not still be a false belief, even if the justification was appropriate? Yeah, so he's, the belief is, the change there is that rather than thinking just Jones will get the job, he just thinks um, the company president told me that Jones will get the job. So he infers that's true. He did, he did hear the, the company president saying Jones will get the job. And so that's the belief that he infers from, which isn't false. It's only false if you say Jones will get the job because he doesn't. So you end up with the belief about the ten, the man who gets the job will have 10 coins in his pocket still standing. But of course, that wasn't inferred. We still would hesitate to call that knowledge. And it feels still like a, a, a modified but successful Gettier case. Yeah, thanks, Paul. And yeah, just for the students. So there's, with this kind of approach, the no false lemmas, there are loads of ways in which you can play around with all these examples, be it Smith and Jones or sheep, or there's some really interesting medical cases as well about doctors inferring what's what's going on with a patient because of the symptoms that they seem to be showing. 
and you can just as 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 Paul said remodel some of these examples so that there aren't any false beliefs in there such that you are using those as your justification but even though you're still and you're ending up with justified true belief but intuitively we we still don't think that smith or the smith like person uh, has got knowledge um i suppose this this shows us uh, one thing which is philosophers are endlessly ingenious at coming up with counterexamples that knock down opponents ideas um and i believe that this is where the fake barns would come in as a that's right that's right fake barns sally yeah so the fake barn example is this idea that you're going through this strange fake barn county where for some reason all the residents decide that they're going to make these fake barn facades, these paper paper mache um, fake barns. So as you're driving through these kind of think of a big sort of American road, you're looking at these fake barns that are very, very realistic. So, you know, you think, oh, gosh, there's a barn there and there's a barn there and there's a barn there. Now, obviously, that's not true. You know, you're looking at these things and, and making a mistake. But towards the end of the road, there is an actual barn. So the, the passenger in the car looks at this barn and forms the belief that is a barn, and it's true. And there's also justification. There's no false lemmas. Not, it's not been inferred from anything false. So I believe I'm seeing a barn, and you know, I form the belief there is a barn, and it's, and it's true. But because it's in this fake barn county with all these fake barns where you would have been incorrect, it again feels like a coincidence. So no false lemmas were set up in order to remove coincidentally justified true beliefs. But then the fake barn county example suggests that actually, no, you can still have a coincidentally justified true belief that is not inferred from any false lemmas. So we haven't actually solved the problem. Perhaps just to pause before we get on to two other responses, um, just to ask the two of you, how are your students doing at the moment, typically? Are they enjoying this stuff are they finding it hard there's some things that are tripping them up um how, how are students typically responding to all this stuff i think maybe sally's already said it but the thing that i think a lot of students find difficult especially if you uh, come to this early on um is it seems to be rather sort of nitpicky and people wonder about why are we trying to come up with all of these little definitions and all of these counterexamples and then tweaking our counterexamples and introducing terms like lemmas and false lemmas. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there seems to be quite a lot of jargon thrown at it. And you can't necessarily uh, always see the motivation for that, I guess. And what I always try and do, and I think it's, it's imperative that you do this, is just trying to keep coming back to why this matters yeah, and I think Sally did a good account of that at the, at the start of the of this program. But the, philosophers aren't just messing around here. But I think it can feel like they are. Like Goldman doesn't come up with fake barns because you know he's just you know, it's, it's not sort of whimsical and, and supercilious. He's actually really he is trying to point out something about the nature of knowledge. And we all make these claims to know all of the time. And it seems to me really important that we have some sort of sense of what it is to know something. But that can be, I guess, the motivation behind the project of epistemology can be lost. And once that motivation isn't apparent to the students, you can just be sort of swimming about in a load of examples and counterexamples and like logical inferences that you don't quite get. And it, the whole thing can become really quite confusing, which is why these sorts of podcasts are excellent. So you can listen again to what may have confused you the first time round. 
but do stick with it would be my yeah but that I think yeah that's yeah. what people find difficult absolutely and sometimes when you're laying these foundations and you know particularly at the beginning of philosophy like oh my goodness I thought I was going to talk about God and the meaning of life and I think well actually what we're doing here is it's it's an exercise of the brain you know and it's it's a mental workout and sometimes like with a physical workout when you're in the gym doing reps you can't really work out why am I doing this and it's still until you go and run the race or play the game you can't see the point of it but we're building those skills and building that kind of mental strength um to to take into everything else you know and I think it is very very important and and I think sometimes epistemology can seem very abstract and a little bit removed, much more so than maybe something like ethics, when everybody can engage in whether we should eat animals, and then you, you switch from that to fake barn, and you're like, why? <laughs> but I think it, it is very important to to think this is you are literally asking what it means to know. That is the whole point of all philosophy. So you've got to do those exercises of the brain to to, to, to even embark on anything else. And we might get onto this in a little bit, but there's now a real um sense that people have a duty to kind of know well because in a in a kind of um in an atmosphere of you know post-truth and all the rest of it and you know fake news and all you know and we're aware that uh, as teachers we're always alert to the fact that students can pick up uh, dodgy sources of information and get their knowledge from from sites and persons and and sources that we feel are, are um you know not entirely to be trusted actually all of this kind of highfalutin and very abstract work is the sort of the necessary groundwork for the for the response to that let's just say actually we can try and know well uh and in part you know a lot of philosophers have done a lot of work that might seem removed from that project but you can connect it to that project we can say well actually it matters how we form our beliefs and if we want to claim to know something then we better be you know yeah, you better have a good idea of what it is, in fact, to make that kind of claim. Um, and also we get we get other sorts of things where our students are encouraged to be academically honest and all of those sorts of things. Again, where you have to try and say that's ultimately an epistemological issue. If you claim to know something that you haven't arrived at through appropriate means or you've stolen from somebody, that seems to be problematic. So those more practical issues and those connected issues to, to life are you know, lying, you know, there, there is a, a connection between them and what it is that we're talking about here, even though it might seem a bit removed at times. Okay, thanks both of you. That's that's really important, actually. I'm glad I asked that, that question. Let's move on then and think about two other approaches or types of response to Gettier-style counterexamples to the tripartite theory of knowledge. So then let's think about reliabilism. So does someone want to explain that and what's going on there? I could hazard a quick go. Um, just take up for it. This is most associated um, in recent times with, with Goldman, who's famous for the, the fake barns. So nice little segue. What happens here is a little bit different, actually, to what we had with the no false lemmas. Uh, and we actually get the a change in the conditions from JTB. And we're going to get rid of the justified. Uh, I'm going to try and replace it with something else. Uh, and what we're going to replace it with is the idea of a kind of a reliable process. So we're going to think about true beliefs that have been arrived at through kind of some sort of reliable process. And that's going to be our new definition of knowledge. Those are going to give us the necessary and sufficient conditions, uh, we hope, 
uh, to claim that something uh, is knowledge. Now, obviously, what, what this is aiming at, again, is to remove the luck that appeared to, uh, or the chance that appeared to lie behind the kind of the, the Gettier case problem. So the immediate question that then sort of occurs to one is, well, what is such a reliable process? What reliable processes are they? And the answer is quite a simple one. It's one that tends to produce true beliefs. Now, there's a bit of vagueness in that idea of one that tends to uh, produce true beliefs. Does that mean it has to produce true beliefs 100% of the time? Or is it just 75% of the time? Or is it just something that's greater than 50% uh, of the time? One would presume it would have to be, otherwise it wouldn't be a particularly reliable process, only a bit better than sort of flipping a coin. Now, whilst that might sound a kind of a little bit vague and a little bit, um, yeah, feeble, actually, if you think about it, we do form lots of true beliefs all the time through lots of reliable processes. So today <laughs> I crossed the road by, uh, I formed the, the belief in my mind that uh, it was safe to cross the road by looking at the traffic and noticing that it had stopped and the, you know, the green man was beckoning me forward on the Pelican crossing and I crossed the road. Uh, and I've done that multiple times um, using kind of uh, the stop, look, listen, or whatever it is, the, you know, these processes that are very reliable for keeping one alive through believing it's safe to, you know, forming the belief that it's safe to cross the road. And in fact, we do this, we, we do this a lot. And we recognize that there are some ways of arriving at true beliefs that are just better than others. Many of us would feel that there are certain, you know, respectable sources such as, you know, the, the broadsheet newspapers, which you might think are more reliable uh, than, say, I don't know, tick, I'm, I'm not a young person, so <laughs> you maybe fill in your own examples here, but you know, TikTok or, or Instagram or, yeah, sorry, I, 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 yeah, I need to hand over to the younger generation there. But we're aware that there's a, you know, a definite kind of um, hierarchy of reliableness that we all feel is quite, um, yeah, that we, I think we will have quite a good grasp of uh, earlier um, Simon was talking about acquiring knowledge through the testimony of your teachers. That, of course, is a superbly reliable um, <laughs> uh, process for acquiring true beliefs uh, and one that is, you know, to pick up something else, entirely infallible. So, uh, yeah, it's not that. And, and we, of course, conversely, we recognize that certain processes don't tend towards reliably forming true beliefs. You know? Hallucinating, dreaming, um, random guessing. All of this sort of, uh, yeah, all of these kinds of processes don't tend to form uh, reliably form true beliefs. So we should, you know, not regard anything formed under that, you know, using those. And this was the kind of the Gettier problem again as being you know, not worthy of calling knowledge. So we get this sense that what knowledge now is, we sort of redefined it as uh, a true belief that's been sort of appropriately caused by a reliable process. I think that's probably the best way of, of thinking about it. Because there's some fun, <laughs> there is some fun to be had here. I remember in the 2010 World Cup, and it's a very famous example, Paul the Psychic Octopus reliably um, predicted uh, by means of uh, opening a box which had the flags of the various uh, countries that were playing against Germany uh, in that tournament uh, and and it, his opening the box indicated which uh, team he thought was going to win. Um, and he was correct on seven out of seven occasions. He correctly predicted who would win in all of Germany's games in the 2010 World Cup. 
So Paul the Psychic Octopus appears to be quite a reliable process um, for uh, knowing the result of football uh, scores. And I might just leave the, the discussion of my, my introduction to reliabilism on that thought. Okay, thanks, Paul. Sally? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the important thing is that you can have a true belief that has been formed by an unreliable process, but you wouldn't call it knowledge. So, for example, if I was to read my my horoscope in the morning and believe that I was going to get run over by a bus because, you know, I'm a Scorpio and it's told me I'm going to have a really terrible day and I do get run over by a bus, I didn't know because my horoscopes are not a a reliable process or a reliable method. And earlier on, we did say about maybe having a more intuitive pragmatic definition of knowledge and this would 100% fall into that because it allows for animals to have knowledge you know it allows you know they they work on their memory and their senses to find food you know and, and so they know where to find food and that's quite an intuitive thing um it allows children to have knowledge it also brings back in the senses which were lost with infallibilism your senses are not infallible but reliabilism will allow you to have knowledge from the senses which again I would quite like to, to claim that I have knowledge from the senses. So reliabilism and infallibilism contrast quite nicely in terms of where you're setting the bar and what you regard as, as um, a, a worthy source of knowledge. I almost said justification, and you want to be careful not to say justification because we've removed that. That's tip to students. Sometimes people say reliable justification. Um, so, yeah, that, that's quite, quite important, I think. And obviously the infallibilist is just going to turn around and say, it's not knowledge because you're trusting your senses or your memory or your teacher and they can lead you into error. So it's just not good enough. And then you've got this standoff between infallibilism and reliabilism about where you pitch pitch what knowledge is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks. Yeah, just some uh, thoughts from me because you mentioned other people, as it were, having knowledge, which seems intuitive. So you mentioned animals. And I was just reflecting on Paul's example of the of the octopus, um, which is kind of interesting one then to debate. I mean, then as a, I suppose Sally's introduced it really, students as a kind of stretch and challenge exercise. Think about some of the examples we've been playing around with and, and talking about throughout this this episode so far. Now, what is a reliabilist probably going to say or having to be committed to saying? So I'm thinking about the. Paul's example of the stopped clock. Oh no, so it was, it was, sorry. Paul talked about it. It actually happened to him. Sally introduced it, right? So normally, looking at clocks, right, on your kitchen wall or wherever it is, is a very reliable process to find out what the time is. But it just so happens on this one occasion, the the, the first occasion in three or four years, the clock has stopped, and so you've got a a, a true belief that's been formed through a reliable process. But would we say that you knew it was three o'clock, even though it turns out to be three o'clock? So think about those sort of examples and how a reliabilist is going to approach and whether a reliable process is going to be enough. And then what we might want to pack into the idea of a reliable process, you know, how reliable is reliable? What are the results going to have to be? Because if they're just 100 percent so far, that might be, again, setting the bar a little bit too high. Um, so that's something to think about. Uh, Paul, do you want to come back in? I'm just going to say there's um, some really interesting, there's one really interesting example, which I believe several papers have been written on, which is the example of chicken sexes. And obviously the, the funny thing is there, when, it, when a chicken is, when a chick hatches, it's very difficult to tell 
whether it's male or female. And we know that for the poultry industry, it matters quite a lot, doesn't it? Because they want egg laying ones. So they, they want to distinguish the males from the females and get rid of the males. And chicken sexes are really reliable at doing this. And there's people who are professional chicken sexes, but they don't necessarily know how they do it. They just notice it. And they can, yeah, they just can, they can just tell. But they don't know how they tell, but they reliably do tell the difference between male and female chickens. Yeah, and that's obviously confirmed by uh, biological, you know, scientific tests and all the rest of it. So that's a that's a really interesting case where you've got a very reliable method for arriving at uh, the truth of whether or not a, you know the sex of a chicken, but it's not clear how that that particular process operates and whether or not we want to say it's very difficult. Do the do the chicken sexes know the sex of the chicks? Well, yeah, but yeah. And that's where we start to notice that our intuitions, which is sort of in the background, we haven't really talked much about this, but actually our intuitions about knowledge have been kind of shaping the whole way that the discussion and the debate has been going. Um, we didn't really specify, for example, why get, you know, precisely what's wrong with the Getty case. We just all kind of felt it was wrong. It wasn't quite knowledge. And with the chicken sexes, we kind of feel it's not, it's not, it's not quite sure. I'm not quite sure how it is that our intuitions are leading us and whether or not we should even trust our intuitions about the nature of knowledge. And it's all this sort of strange, suddenly as you start looking at the, the examples and you start thinking about them, you wonder about how you yourself are guided in trying to work out whether or not X is an example of knowledge or not. And quite often I'm not quite sure, I can't, I can't quite tell why I feel a certain way about something being knowledge or not being knowledge. And so, yeah. But we do, and yeah, we feel. I feel quite confident in saying that Getty cases aren't knowledge, but I'm not confident about saying that chicken sexes don't know the sex of the chicks because they seem to know the sex of the chicks. Yet the process through which they do it is reliable but mysterious. So, uh, it's a bit weird. <laughs> yeah, as an important footnote on all that, uh, students, and this is a, away from any specification. But in recent years, there's been some very interesting sociological, uh, cultural work done. Uh, on different countries and age groups and so on, thinking about examples like this, and lots of other examples such as, you know, does this person, if they make this decision, do they have free will? Are they responsible? So getting us into moral philosophy and so on. And actually there are some differences across cultures, quite pronounced differences a- across cultures that then are kind of in the background here for when we're saying intuitively this sort of case they do know, this sort of case they don't know, and what's that telling us then about the theories that we're trying to, to formulate. Um, that's way beyond any specification, but you should know that there has been this work that's gone on. And so we're thinking about this, I mean, myself, Sally, uh, Paul, um, you know, are from the UK, and in fact, all of us originally are from the West Midlands, so perhaps there's something specific about how people in the West Midlands respond to examples of chicken sexes and stop clocks. Um, but in other parts of the world, there might be people brought up in a, in a different culture who might respond uh, to these examples in slightly different ways, and that might be quite telling for them which theories are adopted and developed. Shall we move on and then think about virtue epistemology? Anyone want to have a crack at that? So virtue epistemology, similarly to reliabilism, removes the justification criterion and replaces it with an account of epistemic virtue or virtue epistemology. You'll find both used in the the literature. 
So virtues are something we normally come across in, in moral philosophy. They're positive, good characteristics, um, you know, usually ethical ones. But in terms of an intellectual virtue or epistemic virtue, epistemic mean to do with, with knowledge, it's this idea that you have the cognitive ability and the cognitive characteristics in order to qualify you to make that particular, or to form that particular belief. And it, yeah, so it's much more putting the emphasis back on the agent. The emphasis is on the person forming that particular belief. And, you know, this, this will vary between people. I don't have the epistemic virtue to diagnose a particular disease. I'm not a doctor or a surgeon. I do have the epistemic virtue probably to know what colour the table is in front of me. I'm, I'm intellectually equipped for that. So it, it will vary. So what we now have is we have knowledge is a true belief that is formed with intellectual virtue. It's formed with you know, this cognitive skill that you need. And, and this is the important bit, the intellectual virtue is the reason that that belief is true. So just to give you an example, kind of paraphrased from, I believe, um, Linda Zagzegsby again. So imagine that you've got a surgeon and she diagnoses a particular disease in a patient. Well, and she gets it right. She does diagnose that disease. So we have the truth, we have the belief, and we have the intellectual virtue. We have the epistemic virtue as well. But let's say by some strange turn of events, she was given somebody else's x-ray. She read an x-ray that wasn't the one that belonged to that patient. But that other patient randomly had the same disease. Well, what we're missing then is that last criterion. So we have the intellectual virtue, the truth and the belief, but the intellectual virtue is not the reason that her belief was was true. So we still have that coincident, coincidence and that lucky true belief. So what we're doing is we, we, epistemic virtue is A, putting the emphasis back on the, on the agent, B, getting rid of justification, which is problematic in itself, and C, trying to eliminate coincidence. So it's a reasonably, it's quite a strong um, definition of knowledge, actually. It, it's a good one. Okay, great. Yeah, so, so I was, okay, I was going to ask you then, Sai, so, so do you like it then? I do, I do. I think it, it's strong. I think reliabilism is more easily grasped. I don't think the, you know, the, the, the non-philosopher is going to be kind of reciting epistemic virtue. Reliabilism is a lot more accessible and intuitive. Um, and it's lovely if you want to kind of move away from infallibilism. But there's something quite satisfying about epistemic virtue i personally find it harder to to criticize which is always a good sign i think so maybe paul you can criticize it i don't know yeah no i was gonna um sort of clap along a little bit actually um back to a remark i kind of made earlier and um i'm, I'm bringing zagzebski back in again there's that connection isn't there in in um virtue epistemology between uh, moral language and uh, epistemic language that we we use all the time, and and Zagzebski says, well, actually, we just got to acknowledge a bit more uh, openly that a lot of the vocabulary we use to uh, critically evaluate knowers or you know, acts of epistemic you know, performance actually are really drawn from the moral you know, moral terms, moral moral concepts. So. I've already talked about you know, kids being asked to be intellectually honest uh, and all of that. So, and we talk about the response, you, you, you ought to have known something. Uh, we have this kind of sense that you are responsible for what you know. And it kind of places very much the focus back on the agent rather than the, the thing that's known. And that is quite a, an interesting move and gets us to that, no, that notion a little bit more that 
some of this is down to us. We are responsible for trying to know in certain ways. And so the condition of our own kind of understanding, the things that we know, or maybe the things that we, the things we know we know and the things we know we don't know, uh, to re- return to Rumsfeld, is, is partially on us. It's not entirely on us. Of course, there are factors external to us. But it does sort of, yeah, make you think, well, this, this knowledge or lack of knowledge stuff doesn't just happen to you. It's something that you have a responsibility to put yourself into position, yeah, to, to be kind of, I don't know, epistemically virtuous so that you can know well. And I think similarly to moral virtues, we can work at it. You know, we, we're not necessarily born courageous and compassionate, but we you know, Aristotle's point is you can work at that and make it part of who you are. And I think intellectually as well, you know, we can't, it, it would be lazy to say, oh, I just, I'm not very good at, you know, at knowing these kind of things. Well, work at it then, you know, make yourself intellectually um, virtuous and, you know, able to make these decisions, do philosophy. Um, you know, and I think that's really important. <laughs> Great. So, in fact, that's a nice uh, segue into the final question I was going to ask the two of you. Just some final reflections and evaluations on this whole debate. So, do you think it was an interesting journey? Have we reached a good end point? Thinking about the tripartite definition and Gettier? I do. I think I think one of the big things with this, I mean, obviously, we've been through some weird and wonderful examples and quite technical definitions, some of them more abstract than others. And I think sometimes you have to make a, a distinction between the sort of philosophy you do in the in the luxury of a classroom and then how you use the language outside when you're living your everyday life you know and you know, quoting Hume you know, be a philosopher but amidst all your philosophy be still a man you know and I think or slash woman he didn't say that but and I think sometimes we can you know our def, the way we might use knowledge in the classroom might be different from how you're going to use knowledge when you're down at Tesco's and do I really know the bread exists? You know, that's not, it's not appropriate. So I think we've got to decide what, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a functional definition of knowledge that fits our everyday intuition? Or are you looking for a foolproof, risk-free definition of knowledge? And that's a decision you have to make. And it might be different in different circumstances. You know, I really like epistemic virtue. Is that what I'm applying every day? Probably not. Well, I'd, I'd like to... Um just say something about the, the story of Edmund Gettier, actually. Um, as you said earlier, Simon, just goes to show that you can write a short, very readable paper, actually. If you want to say that you've read uh, a philosophy, a technical philosophy paper in its entirety for, for an interview somewhere, read Gettier is Justified True Belief Knowledge. And you'll see that it's, it's you know, elegant, to the point, very well written. And of course, it causes an explosion. We've already had the idea that it's you know, like the Joker Watching, watching everything burn um but it actually he's it, actually been incredibly productive so this one paper now i mean simon you've, you mentioned it wasn't necessarily entirely unprecedented but just in this one contribution that when you read it you sort of think god yeah well it's, you might think this is actually so simple this is a you know kind of statement almost of the obvious you know i could have come up with that you might think in a moment of hubris and what it spawned is an incredibly productive um, and creative set of responses. So the infallibilists, who we didn't necessarily like, that they're, they're doing their thing. They're coming up with some ideas. Reliabilism has been, you know, it's spawned loads of different varieties, and lots of people are working on reliabilism right now. Lots of professional philosophers are getting a lot of interest and joy out of this. And there's there's optimism, I think, in the field that they might be able to solve Gettier. 
though you know quite ha- and, and it seems like it's a live field and it just goes to show that it doesn't matter if we've been thinking about this stuff for two and a half thousand years there's still a contribution that people can make and that contribution might actually be a kind of just a moment of insight that's expressed really well so even if you just sat in a in an a-level classroom or an ib classroom or whatever there's certainly a path you, you shouldn't feel like this is just learning about the past and i can't contribute to this this just shows you that it's possible to completely revolutionize a field um, or reinvigorate a field in quite a, you know, in a, a simple achievable way that's perhaps you know, perhaps not entirely fair to get here but i think we could we should be optimistic that it might sound a bit technical and the rest of it but actually at the heart of it all it's not and we can be optimistic that we can make real contributions to philosophy along the way or at least all our students can maybe it's past you know maybe i'm past it but you know <laughs> hand over to them they should they should have some optimism i feel thanks well yeah i was about to say so students if you're if you're listening to this it could be you in a in uh, perhaps a few years time listen let's uh, leave things there that was really uh, helpful and interesting both of you and we should thank both of you for your time and your thoughts so sally thanks for coming on again oh thank you so much i had a really good time again uh, and paul thanks to you as well no, i really enjoyed it thank you uh, simon thank you sally and thanks to everyone for listening yeah yeah absolutely thank you to you for listening hope you enjoyed this episode and if you enjoyed this one Hope you enjoy some of the other episodes in Philosophy Gets Schooled.